Good morning, planet Earth. This is the Stream of Random Podcast. If you don't know what it is, I'll tell you right now. It's a personal therapy session for your host, me, Hacker Mike, where I express my ideas in public to an audience of four. (laughs) It is 4.50 in the morning. We have a half moon. And Mars is prominent in the sky. Venus is not to be seen, but it's cloudy. Maybe she's going to pop up later. It's a mild day. The fall is beginning, but it's not cold today. No need for a jacket. Now, I've started to do my shopping runs on my morning walks and um, I picked up this one dollar bag backpack from Dollar Tree on uh, Saturday and it fits in my pocket so that's real nice and that's what I'm going to carry I'm going to go look for reduced items. Not that I can't afford to pay full price, but it's really against my religion. Getting the end cuts from the deli is a great way to save. I mean, we're talking about $3 a pound, which is the price of dog food. Versus 10, 15, 20 dollars a pound, which you pay for uh, cold cuts, cheeses. Not that you should be eating cold cuts, but believe me, you'll eat less. Now, my grandpa, on my mom's side, was a super, super frugal guy. I always tell that he he ran his own business. He was quite well-to-do. When he died, he was able to give his children some money. And he had, like... Two months vacation every year where he would go fishing in the Ozarks in the same camp spot with the same old boat that he would fix up the aluminum boat that he would fix up every year patch it and whatever and all of his stuff he would get from the uh, veterans uh, thrift store next to his office so he had a He had a building where he had his chicken hatchery in Salina, Kansas. Originally, he was from, he grew up in Mountain Grove, Missouri, on a farm, small little town on the White River, which actually flows into the Ozarks. And I guess you could call him a hillbilly. And he would chew tobacco and listen to the ball game on his radio. Little transistor radio.
and he would uh, he had his chicken hatchery and next to the chicken hatchery was I think I never saw it I saw the chicken hatchery but I never saw the thrift store but I heard a lot about it the veterans thrift store and he was so cheap he wouldn't shop in the veterans thrift store he would go dumpster diving in the veterans thrift store and every time they threw away toaster because it didn't work he would grab it get out a screwdriver and fix it and he was like the repairman for this thrift store and he would take all the electronic items and all the different items they threw away and he'd fix them all and that's where he got everything from so that was my great inspiration on being cheap and he would never buy anything new and he loved Aldi's. That was his favorite store to go shopping in. I'm like, you know Aldi's? Like, yep, that's good food. Or the Golden Corral. I love the Golden Corral as well. Because it was all you can eat. And they had a senior citizen's discount. Yeah, God bless them. Yeah, and we went camping with him all the time in the summer. And I learned that life is like a camp. Because your neighbors and the house next door, they're really just like the campers next to your campsite. There's just a more permanent camp. Your luxury house with a swimming pool and 17 floors, 17 rooms. That's also just another form of a camp. It's a more expensive camp. But everything is just a camp. In the eyes of Buddha, all of your possessions are just temporary. And the flow of life, the stream of life, on the river where Buddha sat under his tree, camping, meditating for seven years, after he gave up his life of luxury to achieve enlightenment, He realized that everything was temporary. And he defined life by suffering and the cessation of suffering. Now, when he said that the cessation of suffering will be the ending of craving. And that craving is what causes more suffering and more karma and more rebirth. And I never really understood that. But if we put that into a meme context, and you will hear this word meme on this show quite often. then Buddha had quite the idea that the rebirth is the spread of the meme on the global scale. Meaning, craving will cause more suffering. The memes are driven by craving. That is the fuel of the meme. So let's break this down. Like, every single viral idea, religion, or whatever, will tie in to, I would say, oh, there's Venus, there she is. Cloud was covering her, beautiful star, planet, Aphrodite. So, so we learned about the generator functions, the survival functions, um, 
on the Inside Out Mind uh, podcast, and we really have to do more study on that, but we know that we have some basic functions we connect with the outside world, and those are the survival functions, and other basic functions I would assume like searching, patrolling, right? Looking for food, understanding her area, and you do that by walking. So traveling. Anyway, let's not go too deep into that, but the whole idea of the meme, okay, the whole idea of the meme is that it's driven, so when we do a meme analysis, we understand what are the driving factors of the meme, of this behavior, what are the things that motivate it? And a lot of times it's going to be wanting to have something or uh, fulfilling some basic need. So religions are fulfilling a need of giving you some purpose in life or organizing society. I mean, really? If we look back, a religion is just the thing that worked at the time. <clears throat> and it fulfilled multiple needs. And it's a um, embodiment of culture over time that's been transferred. Just like law, it's something that has risen to power and been replicated. Well, Buddhism also rose to power and was replicated. The guy couldn't even write. He had to have his cousin write everything down for him. That's why we know about him. And um, his stories have fantastic, have fantastic elements in them. But people didn't have the same idea of science and skepticism back then. Everything was full of magic. The world of the old people was full of magic and angels and demons. <clears throat> and um, when he was being tempted by the devil, under his tree and being screamed at by the devil and he realized that nothing exists. I think he was dealing with some form of um, schizophrenia of some kind or let's just say hallucinations and those can be brought on by isolation, being an isolation tank, um, going into a dream state where your mind is creating things. It doesn't have to be schizophrenia, but you know, he talks about suffering a lot. And he talks about all these demons and all that. And I think some of it might be some kind of bipolar type situation. So, I mean, that's just something to think about. But, um, I mean, obviously, the idea of suffering as a uh, universal function and as the first noble truth is very profound. But it's also a viewpoint. I don't necessarily, I mean, obviously, life is suffering. 
but framing everything in terms of suffering as a viewpoint that someone who's depressed could take. You know? Like, oh, my life is suffering. Everything is terrible. You know, that's kind of like a viewpoint that you can get into in, like, a depressed state. So, um, I think we also have to attack it somewhat on that perspective. One, two, three, four, pack a deer crossing the road. So, um, I was just thinking about the lady I met yesterday on my walk. She's a member of the local historical society and was telling me a lot of stuff. And she said, you know, Federal City Road? And I said, yeah. She said, that used to be the plan for the capital city to be in Trenton, New Jersey. But the South didn't like it because it was too far north. So they decided on Washington, D.C. So that was something that really blew my mind. And we're going to have to do some episodes on that topic. And a whole bunch of history and knowledge she dumped on me. That was great. <clears throat> I'd like to record some of it. Maybe get her to do a podcast. And I think I might start a separate podcast. That's not the stream of random. But it could be the, the stream of history. And we can just do... Some actual history... Um, and not be completely random, actually have some kind of structure. Because this is the random idea generator over here. So, every meme needs fuel, and those are going to be feelings, positive or negative, that fuel it. And I think the rebirth is really, they say the rebirth in Buddhism is the reincarnation, because at the time the reincarnation was a, was an idea that if you're good, you'll be reborn as something better. If you're bad, you'll be reborn as something worse. It's kind of like an idea of karma. And that's really like an evaluation function, but let's consider that for the evaluation function of a meme. Not you as a person will be reborn, or you as a soul, but the soul is also just a meme, okay? It's an idea. It's an idea that's propagating and being propagated. Well, actually, we're going to go this way. So if the idea of a soul is a meme, and the idea of the self is a meme. Because we really don't know what the self is or the soul is. These are ancient concepts. These are words. These are names. These are things that we're told. Oh yeah, the soul is the immortal undying. Okay. But what if we just say the soul is a meme? It's an idea that's being propagated. Right? It copies itself. The idea itself copies itself between people. It's part of some religions, but it's really an old idea that comes back to ancient times. As well, the idea of karma. What if these things are fitness functions for memes in a global neural network? or a local neural network for that matter, a society, right? 
inside of the framework of, say, a religion, which really defines a culture or a society, a group. It's kind of like the codified knowledge of a particular group. And what if these symbols, these memes, are again just camping spots in our mimetic memory, in our oral memory? And really, let's think about this, guys. All of society, until they started to write and digitalize things, all of it was verbal. It was just stories that were told and passed on from generation to generation for a long time. Let me just double check this recording to make sure that it's going because that would be a shame if I lost this really. I'm on a roll this morning. Yeah, it's recording 21 minutes. Here we go. Well, you guys haven't heard me talk in this long in a long time, huh? I've just been clipping other people. You think I'd be playing clips from Adam Curry today on the Joe Rogan show? Well, he's going to be clipped enough by other people, let me tell you. You're not going to need me to clip him. At least in this listener, everyone's going to be listening. In this, my listener group is probably going to all listen to, be all listening to that. <coughs> so I don't need to uh, clip that stuff that you're going to listen to anyway. I need to clip the stuff that you're not going to hear. Okay. Good coffee. So back to Buddha and religion. So basically, we have a survival function and um, And part of our survival function is going to be the sharing of knowledge for our society, which turns out is a pretty damn good idea for survival. Okay? Like the gain, negative entropy, the gain in knowledge over time. And, um... But that function is not necessarily scientific. And the idea of science and the idea of criteria of critical thinking, I think, is something that is relatively new and that has been derived over time by philosophy and logic. Let's just call it philosophy, which is the studying of these things, the studying of the outside world, the making sense of it, which was what we're doing right now, even for me personally, just trying to sort all this stuff out in my head to give it some form. You might say, oh, this is the stream of random, how could you be possibly giving structure? Well, I like to, I do like certain structures. I do like me a taxonomy. As the guy said, now there's this one show that I've been listening to and I've been preparing clips for, and I might just include a clip right now, it's on dark data. And it's not dark data like dark web, it's dark data like things that you don't know. And basically, he showed from a statistical point of view, and he made some really good insights, he said, if you're planning a study, don't plan your study on what you're going to sample. Plan your study on what you're going to not sample. Like, what are the things that you can ignore? Define your dark data, he said, meaning the data that you won't sample, and justify it. 
because if you don't, it can have serious negative repercussions. And he showed how the shuttle crash was because of dark data, because they only had graphed the points where they had crashes, and they had left out all the points where they weren't, they didn't have overhang failures. And on their graph, they showed that the temperature, they tried to show that the temperature was a, was a function of the overhang failures, but because they left out all the points where they didn't fail, um, then, uh, the graph would not show that data and it's a by leaving that data out he said it was dark data it, it wasn't seen it was obscured and that actually is what caused the failure in logic and that's what caused the shuttle to crash so overconfidence not questioning your assumptions not questioning the things that you don't know or don't see which is a lack of imagination and a lack of logic and rigor. And we're gonna see a lot of that So we learned about creating definitions um, and it was Plato and Socrates who had to define everything. Now, I'm not sure if they were actually the first ones to do it, but maybe they're the first ones to do it in the West. We do have a West bias. <clears throat> so, but um, let's just say that our entire society and all of the knowledge that we have is just another temporary structure a little encampment on the river of time that may or may not survive. We may go the way of Atlantis or whatever you want to call it, lost civilizations, wiped out. What if there was a civilization on Mars? A planet that was burned out that used to have water? It could have been like Earth. know what do we have left over from that well, we have our survival function that's the one thing we have and we have some ideas that make us feel happy memes this idea of the soul that we're gonna live forever and Well, the idea of the soul will live forever, the meme, but if your soul is going to live forever, that's a completely different question. So we're going to even define what is the soul and where does it start and where does it end? And the, guy, the neuroscientist said, you know, we're spending all these times trying to find these boxes of where the soul is in the mind. And that's what neuroscience is. And where is the ego? And he says it doesn't work and it ain't happening. These are just concepts that we came up with. These are just memes. <clears throat> but of course, the idea of karma is good for a fitness function, for evaluating behavior in a society. And the idea of striving to have your soul saved is a good idea, right, in a society. So having good behavior is a good idea. The question is, how are you going to achieve it? Right? The idea of not spreading infectious diseases is a good idea. But the question is, how much of our 
freedoms are we going to give up for that? And I really do think, again, as I said yesterday, we have to take, we have to cherish the freedoms that we have as Americans <clears throat> as long as we have them. And we have to fight for them as long as we can. Because when they're gone, we won't have them anymore and we'll be just like Australia or England or Germany where they don't have free speech and they will come and knock on your door and put you at gunpoint because you posted an idea that you want to protest against them. No, I think the lady should be protesting against irrationality <clears throat> and freedom of speech and not be protesting against um, COVID because they can't lock you up for that, can they? And they should be really protesting against the actual problem, which is overreaching government control. Look at all these bags of... I have to come and get some of these bags. Bags of grass people are throwing away. Put some of that in my compost. Because it's running low. So... I do think that we should... Um, try and protect society through good behavior that individual actions do matter but the question is what society are we going to live in a totalitarian one or an open one are we going to strive for good behavior and also understand why it's a good behavior Or we're going to follow silly rules that don't make any sense. All right. Okay, so let's... um. Let's do play some clips now from the uh, dark data. I did prepare them. And this guy's podcast is excellent, and it really has given me food for thought. So I'm just going to share that with you. Um, I don't know if I finished up my rant, my idea, on the memes and Buddha, but I definitely think that we're... Uh, <clears throat> starting to deconstruct even Buddhism from a meme perspective and really we talked about the fuel that causes the rebirth the re being reborn from a Hindu perspective which is the let's just call that the propagation of a meme the planting of an idea in someone else's head, but it needs to have the craving. And the craving is what causes the propagation. And that craving, I think, also is a derivative of the survival function. It's the craving, it's the wanting of something. Now, <clears throat> Umberto Eco said that there's something called a cognitive type and you don't, you can't actually say what it is, but you know what it is when you touch it, when you get it. So it's the looking for to satisfy something. And uh, maybe these are just proteins, and maybe these are receptors. So let's just say we have these receptors for things like pleasure and food or whatever, or hormones. 
and the craving is the searching for these hormones to fulfill them okay or yeah receptors let's just say key locks keys and locks and you have certain locks in your body in your brain that are craving they're pulling they're causing behavior they're causing movement and that craving those locks those unfulfilled needs are the basis for the spawning of memes or the replication of behavior, the copying of behavior. <clears throat> you know, you're trying to fulfill something and then you look around and you're like, oh, well, they're doing it this way. Maybe I could try it that way. Right? Morning. So that's kind of the idea. And if the guy was sitting in an isolation tank for seven years and he was observing all the crazy stuff in his head and analyzing it, forcing himself to ignore it until he reaches a level of enlightenment where he frees himself from the craving and the rebirth it has a vision for what is the mind and how everything is an illusion um, I think that's a pretty good insight that he can share with us and maybe we don't have to believe what he's saying on face value about reaching nirvana and destruction. Maybe that's just the deconstruction of the self. Maybe that is the reframing of the world with his new insights. And maybe that's just the way he saw it. And maybe <clears throat> things back then were just a little bit more dramatic. I mean, if you ever read any Hindu texts, it's pretty dramatic stuff. Right? And all of these gods and demons and all that, that's pretty dramatic. The goddess of destruction and creation, Shiva, and all that, and I mean, they've got a whole cast of characters. They have all these different gods. They're all pretty colorful. Lots of pretty pictures. Lots of forms. I mean, it's pretty crazy stuff. So, you know, we have to see everything in context. I mean, he was a he was a Hindu. All right. So yeah. Enough about Buddha. We're going to just think about that. Let that sit. Let that sink into your subconsciousness. Think about it a little bit. And then um, think about it tomorrow a little bit. And think, where am I craving? What am I craving? What is driving my behavior? <clears throat> what do I need to do to survive? What's my survival function? What's essential to my life? And what all is being done to satisfy urges or cravings that are being defined by symbols, by terms of other people, things I see on TV, where they say, oh, you can satisfy this urge and this craving if you just buy this product. Well, hey, you can also satisfy that urge and that craving if you go dumpster diving at the... Uh, 
Salvation Army and pick up the, some of the stuff that they too stupid to fix. Alright? Like, you want to toast your toast? I'm sure they're throwing away a toaster over there. You can go get one. So that's what we learned from Grandpa. Alright, I'm going to start playing some Dark Data Clips, and then we're going to actually clip the rest of the show, because I didn't clip all of it. There's still more to go. So let's play that up. Thank you for listening to my rant, to my idea. I really appreciate it that I have a chance to actually speak my mind. This is a live show, and we're recording it in pieces. The show is not over yet. I just uploaded the first clip. So um, you can call in. You can chat me and all that. See the um, podcast description on anchor.fm for more information on how to do that. You can adjust how this show actually takes place if you're up and listening already. With this book, you've carved out your own perspective by focusing on the data we in the royal we have, um, but on the data we don't have. So what does this perspective bring to our understanding of concepts and techniques in data collection and analysis? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. For, for obvious and perfectly sound reasons, most books focus on the data you do have. You're not going to teach someone regression analysis by saying, let's suppose that we haven't got the data we need. You know, you know. Um, So quite naturally, especially in, in the early stages, you say, look, these are the data sets. So I want to understand the relationship between these different variables. And these are the data I'm going to use to do it. But I think as you become more advanced and as you encounter real problems, um, you recognize that there are inadequacies about data. Um, so, for instance, um, any real data set, okay, so, so you might teach a student, you might say, here, here, here are the data you need to calculate the regression. This is the least squares algorithm. These are, the, these are the equations you need. But then they go out and look at a real problem, and then they discover that, well, somebody hasn't just given me the data, the data has been collected, there are all sorts of shortcomings and weaknesses about the way the data has been collected. And they need to go beyond what they've been taught and ask themselves, how might those weaknesses and shortcomings impact my conclusions? And that's really what what drove the book, the the consultancy work I'd encountered where there have been all sorts of problems, inadequacies in the data, um, leading to possible mistakes and the need to educate people about the potential risks and, and what they can do about those risks. I have to say that I believe that all statistics teaching, um, certainly if it's more than just one module, if it's a whole statistics degree or something like that, should definitely include modules on missing data, rough data, measurement error, all these sorts of problems on dark data. Because if it doesn't, I think these students are not properly educated to in- to deal with the problems they're going to encounter in the real world. And I'd love to get into some of those examples. First, I have what I usually have. So this next um, clip, he talks about <clears throat> estimating the average uh, bus being full. And he's saying like, um, everything is very subjective. If you're on a uh, bus that is full, uh, you'll estimate all the other buses as being full. I think that's basically what he's saying, and that if you're not on a bus that's full, if you're on an empty bus, well, first of all, you're est- you wouldn't be there to be estimating it because you wouldn't think that the buses are full, especially if you're on an empty bus. Um, <clears throat> it wouldn't be there. So that there's a lot of things that have a bias, a survivorship bias. Like we observe the universe the way it is because if the universe was different, we wouldn't be there to observe it, right? Or successful business people are like this. But we don't see all the non-successful business people. So there's something like a survivorship bias in the data. Let's listen to this clip. 
So this next um, clip, he talks about <clears throat> estimating the average uh, bus being full. And he's saying like, um, everything is very subjective. If you're on a uh, bus that is full, uh, you'll estimate all the other buses as being full. I think that's basically what he's saying, and that if you're not on a bus that's full, if you're on an empty bus, well, first of all, you're you wouldn't be there to be estimating it because you wouldn't think that the buses are full, especially if you're on an empty bus. Um, <clears throat> it wouldn't be there. So that there's a lot of things that have a bias, a survivorship bias. Like we observe the universe the way it is because if the universe was different, we wouldn't be there to observe it, right? Or successful business people are like this. But we don't see all the non-successful business people. So the, there's something like a survivorship bias in the data. Let's listen to this clip. As an example, could you explain to me why when I ride the bus, it's always more packed than average? Yeah, yeah. I, I think perhaps the easiest way to see this is to take an extreme. I suppose that we've got a, a, a thousand buses and that... Nine and 999 of them were empty, but one was packed. Then if you ask passengers to say what the average number of a bus, a number of passengers on a bus was, was, they wouldn't see all the empty ones. They just see the packed one and they say, well, you know, the, the bus, the average number is a huge number of passengers on the bus. They're missing all the, for obvious reasons in this extreme case, they're missing all the empty buses. And in less extreme cases, the same sort of argument applies. So you're getting a, a biased or distorted impression of what's going on and that in some sense is the whole concept which underlies dark data you're getting because you're seeing some of the data and not other parts you're getting a distorted impression of what's going on i remember coming across this paradox in a different form when i first started training in network analysis um, network analysts talk about the friendship paradox or social network analysts uh, by which my friends on average have more friends than i do and it's this sort of self-deprecating way of describing what it's like to be a network researcher, but resolving it was, was a pretty fun experience for me early on. And I'm glad to have seen it come up in a different context. I think, I think the friendship paradox is, is a beautiful example of this sort of sampling bias, the sort of misperception you get if you just look at um, uh, your own experience. I have to say that the most extreme example of that, which I talk about in the book, is the anthropic, is, is anthropic bias, the anthropic paradox, where... Um, the universe has to be like what it is now. We see a particular kind of universe because it was very, if it was very different, we wouldn't have existed to see it. So it's exactly the same, the same sort of distortion going. Yeah, yeah that is a great analogy or a great um, connection between what we normally think of as a statistical question and what we normally think of as a philosophical question. You also take a ser more serious turn in this chapter. So this next clip, he's going to introduce the challenger failure, which I think is very, very interesting. So you might want to listen to this a couple times. Turn in this chapter to discuss the challenger disaster. Now, the story of O-ring seal failure at low temperature may be familiar to a lot of listeners, but as you tell it, this is at root a story of dark data. So could you give us that perspective and that story? I, I, I think I think that's right. It, it's exactly, really, a fundamentally a, a story of dark data. Um, the point, okay, the, the Challenger launch had been postponed six or seven times. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on not postponing again, partly because there was a presidential state of the union the next day, partly because there was a lot of attention on it, because there was a school teacher going up in, in, in the Challenger, a lot of attention. They wanted to go ahead. So they had a, a teleconference, the different organizations involved had a teleconference the night before saying, should, should we go ahead? And one of the most important pieces of data that they looked at for that was a plot of O-ring failure against air temperature during the launch. Um, this plot showed, well, it shows seven data points. I've reproduced it in the book. Um, and it apparently showed no relationship 
between air temperature and and um, O-ring failure. Even you know they suspected there might be one, which is why they were holding the teleconference. But you look at the data, there doesn't appear to be a relationship. So they decided to go ahead with the launch, which with the consequences everybody knows. Um, but there was something fundamentally missing from the plot, from the diagram, the graph they looked at. It was obviously dark data. The graph showed um, number of O-rings. At each launch, it showed the number of O-rings which had failed and plotted against temperature. Yeah, so there were several, there were five, in fact, which failed, um, which had one O-ring failure, one which had three O-ring failures, another one, the highest temperature launch, had two O-ring failures. Um, but there's something funny about that graph, and I would expect a statistician or a data scientist poring over that graph to have spotted something funny. What was funny was that it appeared to show that on no launches was there were there no O-ring failures. Every launch had at least one, possibly more, O-ring failures. Now that's a bit odd. You would expect some launches just by chance not to have no not to have any problems. And in fact, there were a whole load of launches which did have no problems and which weren't included. The dots didn't include, the points weren't included on that graph. If you include them, suddenly the picture changes completely. And now there is a very clear relationship between air temperature and the possibility, probability of O-ring stress. And, and it's a very clear graph showing that the probability of O-ring stress increases dramatically with decreasing air temperature. And since the forecast temperature was way below extrapolating beyond the data was way below, below the launch temperature of any previous launch. I think if they had seen the complete data, including these dark data about launches which hadn't had any problems, they would not have gone ahead with the launch. Seeing now we're going to get into some definitions. He talks about three different types of ways to collect data, a census, a survey, and an experiment. And a census is when you collect all the data from everything. A survey is when you collect some data, and an experiment is when you actually modify the environment and provoke a behavior. So, but that's what census means. It means measuring everything. Given that you can't always measure everything because it doesn't make sense or it might be too expensive, you measure a sample. You just measure some of them. Now, you can immediately think, well, this is a dark data risk, isn't it? Because if I'm measuring some, I'm not measuring others. But statisticians have developed clever ways of sampling, determining what your sample should be so that you can get very accurate estimates of the entire population characteristic from just your sample. You can put error bounds on it. You can say, I am 99% confident that the weight lies between these two intervals. So that's the notion of survey, where you just measure some. It's got to be some carefully chosen, um, but statisticians can tell you how to do that. And then the final category of data collection is the experiment. In, in the census and the survey, you just measure what's out there. You go and ask people their age and write it down. Or you, 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 you see whether if the disease is getting worse or whatever. In an experiment, you manipulate the circumstances. You give them a different treatment or you make, give them a higher dose of a treatment or you, or you put them on a weight loss diet or, or, or something. So you're now controlling what you're doing. This allows you to um, investigate things which what are called observational data in censuses or surveys where you just measure what's out there, you can't do. So experimental data, it enables you to explore um, causal effects, if you like. So those three methods, census survey and experiment. So this next clip, he's going to talk about definitions and how they are different and <clears throat> that also uh, applies to the COVID death rate where it's not clear what is meant by a COVID death or a COVID case or a COVID infection and <clears throat> there's wildly different numbers in different locations it's different like New Jersey has the highest death rate last time I checked which is 10 times higher than New York Per case so it's um, or per popula actually population you have to get the death rate per case as well but there's so much discrepancy that it's just 
I think it's going to take a long time before we can actually um, get enough insight into it. Right now it's very uh, momentous. Momentous. It's very current. So we don't have full information. Okay, well let's play this. question am I trying to answer before you can decide which of these is the appropriate one to use? Um, so let, let me give you another uh, more topical example of definitions. COVID, of course. Um, COVID death rates are published every day on the, uh, on the web and, uh, and in newspapers, and different countries have got dramatically different death rates. But one of the problems is that they're, even for something, you would expect differences for infection rates, because what do you mean by infection? Has you, have you actually been tested and so on? But death, you would think, well, that's pretty clear. They've lived or they, you know, they're alive or they're dead. It, you, it, there's no sort of argument about this. It's clear if someone's died. But again, even, even then, there are different ways of measuring COVID death rates. First obvious thing is, did they die, did they die of COVID or with COVID? Now, you're going to get different numbers if you adopt the different definitions there. Did they have a formal diagnostic test that it was COVID that killed them? Or were they just showing symptoms and they happened to die? You know, they were coughing and, and, and so on. Um, are all deaths included in the count or are, are, um, are many missed? Um, you know, people dying in their own home and, not, and you don't know why they died or people just disappearing or, or perhaps people in care homes. And so, so there are all sorts of different ways that the counts can be put together depending upon how you define it. Um, in fact, uh, I've got a, a nice little example of this is the worldometers produce death counts of um, fatality counts of, of um, COVID statistics. And I look back at, to the May counts. And by the 28th of May, the UK had um, 267,000 cases and 37,000 deaths. 267 cases and 37,000 deaths, while Russia had 380 cases, but only 4,000 deaths. Now, you know, it might be that the Russian death rate was far lower than the UK death rate, but I think it's much more likely that they were counting what they meant by a death from COVID in different ways, and that Russians were not picking up a lot of the cases that the UK would have counted as a COVID death. So, even something as straightforward as death from a particular disease is vulnerable to people using different definitions. Yeah, and if I may comment, one of the interesting phenomena about seeing these books on data and algorithms popping up pretty frequently in the popular press is that the issues they raise, which have been more or less silent for several years, are also starting to pop out in the major news outlets. So the, the issue you're describing of of definitional differences in how we measure COVID cases, deaths, and spread have been a lot more visible in the press, by my estimation, than similar issues, uh, for instance, dealing with immigration were five or 10 years ago in the States, at least. Hmm. I, I, I think that's exactly right. People are becoming very aware of these issues. I have to say, uh, this poses me with something of a dilemma, because I want to say, and indeed the Dark Data book is, is saying, look, you, you, you have to be careful. You have to think very carefully about what you want to know, how you're collecting the data, where do the data come from? Can you trust, trust the data source? What might you be missing? But I also want to say, look, statistics, data science is a very powerful tool for understanding what's going on. So I want people to, people to be suspicious, but I don't want them to be so suspicious that they dismiss any any real factual data, you know, so it's a fine balance. So this will be the last clip from the Dark Data podcast, and the link is in the show notes if you want to listen to the full thing. It's quite, quite worth it, and it has been keeping my mind occupied for the past couple of days. I couldn't get over this podcast because of the way that it taught me to model the Dark Data and to think about the things that we don't know to actually model them, which is a challenge. It's something to think about. It give you another way to look at things. Um, to try and imagine what's outside the world when you're, when you're chained to the wall of the cave of Plato. Chapter, you also describe this 
informal hierarchy of sources of unusual patterns that data mining uh, analysts have identified, and you rank them by likelihood. And I thought this was very compelling. So I wonder if you could just rattle through those. So, so data miners say that the causes. So, what they're doing basically is they're, the objective of what they're doing is try to find interesting, anomalous, unusual, valuable structures in large data sets. That's what their objective is. And what they've discovered after sort of years of painful experience is that the cause of interesting, unusual, anomalous structures in data are, in decreasing order of likelihood, first, there's a problem with the data. Some kind of dark data is corrupting the data, so you are being misled. Second, the structures are just chance. They are, in fact, due to random fluctuation. That little cluster of disease, disease in a particular case, is just chance that there isn't a sudden disease outbreak. Third, they turn out to be known about beforehand. People buy cheese and crackers together. You know, great discovery. The machines trawled through the data and found this, and you write it up in your paper. People buy cheese and crackers together, and everybody says, well, surprise, surprise. (laughs) We knew that. And then, uh, fourthly, the final reason is, and this is all before you get to, you know, yes, it's an important discovery. The fourth thing is that they are uninteresting. (laughs) You find that, for example, approximately half of the married people in America are men and half are women. Well, yes. Actually, I have to say that one of my favorite examples of this sort of thing was the discovery by an automated anomaly detection pattern detection data mining system that ups and downs in time series, like stock market values, alternated. So I I had a wonderful example of this. I happened to be listening to the weather forecast on the radio, and I heard the forecaster say, tomorrow is going to be a we're going to have periods of wet spells with dry spells in between. <laughs> well, if two wet spells occurred one next to the other, it would just be a one longer wet spell. So you must have. And this automated system had discovered that maxima and minima are alternated, which I thought was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. So. Uh, moving on to chapter five, you focus on gaming feedback and information asymmetry. One of the one of another widely known concern, widely discussed concern that you cover in this chapter is variably called Campbell's law or Goodhart's law. One of those I was familiar with, the other not. Uh, so, could you introduce us to those uh, concepts and what they refer to? Yeah. So. Campbell's law says the more any quantitative social indicators used for social decision making, the more subject it will be to corruption pressures and the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it's intended to monitor. And as you say, Goodhart's law is is similar. It says, sort of milder, it says when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And the point of this is that you, you want to understand the system you're studying, social system or whatever it happens to be. So you say, I am going to measure these things. And once it becomes known that you are focusing on measuring those things, people will work towards towards the measurement. If you decide that we are going to um, use child mortality as a measure of the well-being of of a nation, people can work towards minimizing child mortality and maybe the cancer rates and people dying of cancer go up because all the resources are being put into, into child mortality. So... And then, and then the measurement ceases to become a good measure of the well-being of the society because it's missing things out. The point is that um, once you focus on a particular thing, it distorts the overall uh, uh, the overall system. Um, the basic problem is that, that people work towards the measure perhaps at a cost of other aspects. I, I have a nice example of this. Um, I think um, Donald Trump came up with this nice example. Um, to minimize the number of apparent cases of COVID-19, how do you do that? Well, you reduce the amount of testing you do. Ah, spot on. That's obviously the right way to minimize the number of cases that you have. Oh, an interesting kind of inverse example where you normally the phenomenon is you want to start measuring something that you care about and that thing that you're measuring, that measurement then becomes what gets what gets addressed instead of whatever underlying problems are causing the emergence of that phenomenon. And here we have the reverse situation. I think that's that's exactly right. Um, and that, that is the fundamental problem. Yes, spot on. Yeah, yeah. So I also happened to... Okay. So I'm listening to the Joe Rogan, Adam Curry podcast right now. 
and I have to say, um, you know, Adam has really laid the foundation for what I'm doing here. And uh, he's done it much better, let's say. Uh, higher production value, and he's created the whole ecosphere for little fish like uh, me to swim in. You know, why would I have a podcasting app built by some Silicon Valley company for free if it wasn't for him doing all that hard work for them to copy it, basically? So, you know, um, hats off to Adam Curry. And, and Joe Rogan really also uh, sets the standard for a podcast. And... Uh, <clears throat> I'm uh, quite interested to see uh, what's going to happen. Now, I have a challenge here. I'm going to try and get a cup of coffee from McDonald's. I guess I have to install their stupid app because they won't let me walk up to the window and they won't let me inside. It's a real pain in the ass. All the other stores let you walk up to the drive-thru, but McDonald's, they treat you like shit. And I have to actually complain about that. Um, just the way they treat you. Um, is really bad. They treat you like a homeless person if you try to walk up to the window. I guess that's because that's what all the homeless people do. So, if you're out and about walking, you get treated like a homeless person. Oh, but there is a Dunkin' Donuts up the road. I'll just go there and get myself a coffee. There we go. Anyway, I'm going to continue listening to this show. I just wanted to give a shout out to Adam Curry and Joe Rogan for, um, you know, paving the road for everyone else. Thanks, guys.